Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. In this difficult day, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. But more importantly, to say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love. You can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and greater polarization. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand compassion and love. I want to start today with a prayer. Uh, God said to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I'll hear their land. And we need healing in our land today. So let's pray that God would use us, his church, uh, to bring healing. All right, let's pray. God, we're just so grateful that you can see beyond what's happening in our society. Uh, You see through to the hearts of men and women. Uh, God, you see the pain in the hearts, uh, in the families um, that are dealing with loss right now. You see the pain in the hearts of the Floyd family. You see the pain in the hearts of the Taylor family. You see the pain in the hearts of the Arbery family. You see the pain in the families of police officers who have lost their lives this week because of riots. And God, I pray you meet these families in their time of grieving and pain and loss. God, I know you're able to see beyond the protest to the pain in the hearts of those on the streets. You see the sin and the hatred in the hearts of people as well. And God, we just wanna humble ourselves before you today. Would you Forgive us our sins and begin with me, God. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for the times when I look at someone who is not like me with judgment or with a sense of superiority. And God, would you bring a healing to our land? God, we need to hear from you today. Would you speak to us, your people? And I pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, today we're going to be in the book of Amos, if you have your Bible and want to turn there. And I want to start with a question. What's the boldest thing uh, you've ever said to someone? I mean, think about that. Like, what's the one statement that took more guts than you knew you had? And I ask you this because we're about to look at one of the boldest people in the Bible, and possibly one of the boldest statements that ever got made. Uh, A little background on Amos. Amos was a farmer. Uh, He took care of a few sheep, 
And then one day, God called this man to leave his sheep and go proclaim God's word. Uh, God called Amos to preach for him, uh, not to Judah, where he lived, but God told him to go up to the northern kingdom, to Israel, uh, to preach there. Now, the northern kingdom at this time was enjoying political success and economic prosperity unknown since the days of Solomon. And people in the northern kingdom who had money were real happy with the way their lives were. Amos is sent there. He's sent to Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. It's the center of wealth and power. Look what Amos says in Amos 1.3. Uh, this, this is Amos now preaching to the people in the northern kingdom, in the capital city of Samaria. Uh, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, and Damascus is the capital of Aram, uh, modern, the modern day uh, Syria, and so he's talking about the country of Syria, one of their enemies. For three sins of Damascus, God says, even four, I will not relent. Now this statement is a, a proclamation or it's a, a pronouncement of judgment formula. For three sins, uh, even for four. Um, you know how in English we say, uh, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, this is a Hebrew way of saying the camel is in a full body cast. Uh, the people have gone too far. Uh, they hear these words and they know uh, this is bad news for Syria. And then he goes on to describe the sin that God was, um, that God says was the last straw. Uh, verse three, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. That is, uh, Syria invaded Gilead with acts of unspeakable cruelty. It was barbaric. Amos starts this message by announcing that the judgment of God is going to fall on Israel's enemy, Syria, because they've been cruel and violent to Israel. Uh, now, let me just ask you a question. Take a guess, a yes or no. Do you think the people in Israel were glad to hear him preach like that? I think so. I mean, these were their enemies and they've been uh, cruel to Israel. And so they were glad to hear about this. You know, their enemies are going to be judged by God. Next in verse six, it's the same formula for Gaza. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Gaza. Um, Gaza is one of the Philistine cities. He's talking about the Philistines now. Uh, for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. And then he lists what they did because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. They were slave traders. Uh, they captured whole towns of people, men, women, and children, and sold them into slavery. And Amos says, God's judgment is coming on the Philistines. And the people were glad to hear this. And his message keeps going like this. Amos says the judgment of God is going to fall on Israel's most hated enemies. It's coming to uh, the it's coming to Phoenicia, it's coming to Edom, it's coming to Amnon, it's coming to Moab. In every case, he recounts the last straw that pushed God over the edge, and the people are cheering. The people are glad. And then in Amos 2:4, he does kind of a surprising thing. He starts in on the southern kingdom, on Judah. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. And the people in the northern kingdom are thinking, this is surprising. He's going after the people 
in his native land. Remember, that's where he's from. Bold move, Amos. And they're applauding and cheering because they don't get along with the southern kingdom anymore. All of this is leading up to chapter 2, verse 6. This is a moment of great drama. Now, you might have some idea of what's going to happen here, but you've got to remember his audience doesn't have a clue. I mean, they think Amos is going to say, God is doing all of this because God loves the people of Israel so much, because he's taking care of them, because he's on their side. Look what he says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. And when he says that, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. Look at verse 7. Because what's going on in the northern kingdom? They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on dust on the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. God is going after them for going after his people because they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside uh, every altar on garments taken in pledge. They take garments uh, as collateral from the poor. And Deuteronomy 24 says you're supposed to take them back at nightfall so they can sleep on them, so they can have something to cover up in. But the rich don't do that. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. This is what Amos says. And no one is cheering now. And there's just this hostile, sullen silence. Because it sounds to them like Amos is talking about Israel as if they're one of God's enemies. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's charging Israel with living as though they were God's enemies. What's the last straw? Like, what's the act that sets God on edge? Amos says, it's the way people who have resources and claim to follow God treat the poor and the needy and the oppressed. It's very interesting. He doesn't say it's that they don't worship enough. He doesn't say it's that they don't know the Bible well enough. He doesn't say a whole lot of things that we might expect him to say. He says it's the way people who have resources and claim to follow and love and know God treat the poor and the needy and the oppressed. Now, it's terribly important that you and I understand why Amos says this troubles God so deeply. And so I want to look at Deuteronomy 24 for a minute. Now, what's happening in Deuteronomy is Moses is telling the people of Israel what God expects his, uh, what he expects his community to look like, uh, how, how God wants uh, things in his community to work, uh, what God wants life to look like for the people of his nation. And in these verses, there are three groups of people who keep uh, being repeated. And I want you to notice as we read through them and see uh, who those three groups are. In Deuteronomy 24, 17, God says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheep, uh, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyards, uh, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. 
Now, what are the three groups God tells the Israelites to watch out for? Uh, the foreigner, those are people that have immigrated in. Uh, they were not ethnic uh, Israelites. Uh, the fatherless, uh, these are the orphans. Uh, they had no one to look out for them. And the widow, uh, those without power, without economic means. God says, watch out for the foreigners. They're likely to be mistreated. Watch out for the fatherless and take care of the widows. And they're not just mentioned here. I mean, they come up over and over and over again throughout scripture. Um, they're what in our day would be called marginalized people. People most likely to be forgotten or mistreated or oppressed by a society. They have different identities in different societies. They may be people of a different color, uh, maybe minorities, but every society that has ever existed has them, everyone. And it's so important that we understand this about the heart of God. The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow each receive over three dozen verses in the Old Testament demanding God's people to show them justice and compassion. God says he will judge a society by the way it treats marginalized people. God makes it unmistakably clear that he takes it on himself to be the protector of these weak ones. He makes it unmistakably clear that anyone who neglects them neglects him. Anyone who oppresses them oppresses him. Let's look at another statement in this regard from scripture. This is from Psalm 68.5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Think about that. God said he's a father to the fatherless. And I've got to tell you, I'm a father to two children who were fatherless. And I read this verse differently than I've ever read it in my entire life. And here's what God is saying. The protectiveness and the fierce love that I have for my children is just an echo. It's just a dim reflection of how deeply and passionately God is concerned for the people who live on the margins of society. God says, this goes right to the core of what I value. That's what our God says. That's the kind of God we serve. And there's a very serious implication to this uh, that I just want to explain as clearly as I can. And that is God's people are to have a heart like God's heart. Now here's Amos. This is his challenge. How do you confront a society that's so addicted to comfort and convenience and affluence and stuff, just stuff, that it doesn't care about what God cares about most? How do you confront a society like that? And he tries everything. In Amos 2.6, he says, you sell the needy for a pair of sandals. Now think about this for a moment. Where people are poor, uh, shoes are a big deal. Uh, Shane Claiborne used to work with Mother Teresa, and while he was working with her, he noticed her feet, that they were badly misshapen. And so he asked someone in the community about that, and he was told that among the poor, there are never enough shoes. And Mother Teresa ins insisted that when shoes get donated, that the best are given to the most poor. And she's always um, taking the worst for herself. And over the years, her feet have gotten very badly deformed. You see, Amos says to the people who claim to follow God, a poor person is in debt to you. Uh, they're not worth much financially. If you were to sell them, I mean, you get enough to buy a pair, of sh a pair of shoes or a pair of sandals, and you sell them. 
Like your heart is more set on a pair of shoes than a desperately poor human being that you could help. So how could you think the love of God is in you if the truth is you're more interested in a pair of shoes? In chapter 3, God is talking about this kind of lack of justice and compassion in the hearts of his people. And he says, judgment is coming. Look at 3.15. He's talking here about the lifestyle of a certain segment in this society. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished. This is very interesting. He's saying there's this shocking disparity between the rich and the poor. When Canaan was first populated, God gave equal property to all the tribes. Uh, Everyone lived pretty much alike. And even in houses from the 10th century BC that archaeologists have dug up, uh, they're all fairly similar. By the time you get to Amos's day, the 8th century, you find areas where there are enormous mansions for the rich. And then other areas where there are miserable hovels for the poor. And that's exactly what Amos is talking about. Uh, There's a theme that runs throughout Amos, that people who have power are increasingly callous to those who don't. In Amos 5.11, he says, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. And then he says, you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Power goes to people's heads. And now we all understand this. Uh, I mean, we're no different. Every political system has to wrestle with this. The weak are at the mercy of those who hold power. And power can get misused. One of my favorite stories about a political figure is about Mayor Daley in Chicago, who was the mayor when I was a kid in Chicago. Uh, He was approached one time by a guy who wrote his speeches, who said, Mayor Daley, I'm not making enough money. And Daley's response was, "Uh, I'm not going to give you any more money. It ought to be enough that you work for a great American hero like me. And that was the end of the discussion, or so he thought. Several weeks later, uh, he was on his way to give a speech. Mayor Daley was famous for never reading his speech before he got up to deliver it. And so he gets up to deliver his speech, and it's before a large group of veterans on Veterans Day, on a Veterans Day occasion. Uh, It's getting national press coverage, and it's quite an eloquent and passionate speech. Uh, He's talking about how uh, everyone has forgotten the veterans. No one remembers them, but I remember them, he says. I care And today, I'm proposing a 17-point program, national, state, and citywide, to take care of the veterans of this country. Now, by this time, I mean, they're all on the edge of their seat. You know, they want to find out what he's going to say next. He's pretty interested himself to find out what he's going to say next. And so he turns the page in his notes, and all it says is, you're on your own now, you great American hero. Now, we love stories like that because... Someone who has no power gets a little justice. Well, Amos is looking at a whole subculture, a whole part of society that held the resources. They had the power. And all they felt like was that they were entitled to get more money and more power. They completely betrayed God's vision for a just, compassionate society. And so Amos says to them, do you think that God was just joking when he gave you the law? Do you think God doesn't see what's going on? 
Do you think God doesn't care anymore about these people that over and over and over again, he says he's the defender of and the father to? Do you think he doesn't care anymore? Do you really think that you can take all of your resources, which all come from God's hands, and use them in whatever way you choose to just enrich your own self and then get mad at God if he doesn't help by sending you more and more and more and more to satisfy an insatiable appetite? Is that what you really think? Amos is unbelievably bold. He'll use uh, any tool he can to try to wake up people from complacency. In Amos 4, this is an amazing statement. I mean, you think about someone saying this to people who had money and power. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. You see what's what's happening here? He's calling the wives of the wealthy and powerful, you cows of Bashan. Do you think they feel complimented by that? Bashan was a a very fertile area. The cows there were famous for being well-fed. That's that's why he calls them cows of Bashan. Now, you need to understand that uh, this is not a name-calling thing here. Uh, Think for a moment about the nature of a cow. Uh, cows are not notable for their good works, are they? I mean, dogs sometimes, like St. Bernard's, you know, they go out and they rescue people. A cow is just like a walking appetite. That's all a cow is. So walking appetite. A cow just asks one question. You know what that is? Where can I get more? That's the only question a cow ever asks. Human beings live like that sometimes. And you've got to understand, we live in a society that very often encourages us to live like that to think of ourselves as just walking appetites for money, for food, for pleasure. How can I get a bigger house? How can I get a nicer car? How can I get a better income? How can I have more sexual pleasure? How can I be more attractive? You understand that's the kind of person our society produces. Cows of Bashan. The deeper problem here is these people make no connection between their treatment of the oppressed and their relationship with the God who cares so very much about these people. They still worship, they still sacrifice, and they're under the illusion that because their lives are going well, God must be blessing them. God must be pleased with them. So again, Amos, this unbelievably bold prophet, I mean, he just thunders. In Amos 5.21, Amos says this is what God says, I hate I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Now you have to imagine the shockwaves going through the crowd when they hear Amos claiming that God says this. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And in this magnificent verse, Amos 5.24, it's one of the, the greatest statements in all of the Bible. He says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. God says, let that happen. Let that flow out of your lives. But don't sit there eating vast amounts of food at a religious feast with the poor starving to death outside your door, congratulating yourself on how much you love me. Don't do that. 
people failed to make the connection between their treatment of those on the margins of society and their relationship with God, their own spiritual bankruptcy. Now, I was planning on talking to you about justice and righteousness, but I think what the Bible Project team has put together is exceptional. And so I want you to see what justice and righteousness means from a biblical perspective. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. 
They ended up as immigrant slaves being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So I want to ask you, just between you and God, and I believe God is real serious about this. Are you speaking for those who can't speak for themselves? Are you seeking righteousness and justice for others? Or are you silent? Do you love your neighbors as yourself? Are you making their problems your problem? Or are you sitting in a position, a powerful position, that you just can't give up? What's your response to the oppressed in our society? Do you have God's heart for them? Do you treat everyone as if they are image bearers of God? You know, there's a note of hope in Amos. It's a real serious book, but periodically God says things like this in the fourth verse of chapter five, seek me and live. God says, seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Those were the cities where altars, golden calves were set up and they became places preoccupied with pleasure and wealth and corruption. God says, don't do it. Seek the Lord and live. He says to Israel, there's still time. If you would repent and turn back and seek justice and righteousness, there's still time. But they don't remember and they don't turn back. I was thinking this week, getting ready for this message, what if all of us did what Amos called for? 
What if we created a community of that kind of compassion and love? What would happen if we were all to do this? Maybe you're thinking, you know, the need is so vast, I, I really can't make much of a difference. But that's not really the issue. Because you never know what you and God can do together. Whenever things seem completely overwhelming to me, I think of the one phrase, uh, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And what matters most is that you've got to try. You've got to do something. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. One insignificant shepherd named Amos, God says, go, and he goes. And almost 3,000 years later, the world is still shaped and awed by his words, by his boldness. You never know the difference one person can make, but God does. And I want to ask you to spend a moment praying about this. I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads for a moment. Right now, if you would, would you just close your eyes so you're not distracted? And Michaela's going to get ready to lead us in a closing song. You know, maybe you're already deeply plugged in to serving and to giving and to fighting for the vulnerable. You're doing the kinds of things that Amos talked about. Maybe for you right now, you just want to talk to God about how you're doing at that and ask him maybe if there's a new idea or a fresh area of calling for you. But maybe not. Because we're part of a subculture that is obsessed with comfort and convenience and success and things that make us self-preoccupied. Maybe the truth is right now, your heart really needs to be broken for the things that break the heart of God. Would you just take a moment right now and talk to God about that? Just pray this prayer. God, what do you want me to do? Maybe you just want to say to him, God, I want to have a heart like your heart for those in this world who are suffering and marginalized. I want to help. I want to do something. So God, help me know what to do. Just take a moment right now and talk to God. And then Michaela is going to lead us in a closing song. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 845, 10, and 1115. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.